Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 30 here. I'm so excited to be chatting with Randy Street, and he is a fellow Bain alum and has culled some insights from tons and tons of data. So it's so cool to be talking about something, leadership issues, which sometimes feel a little bit fuzzy, but he brings tons of data and insight to them. So so it's pretty exciting. We're going to get right into it here. So you're going to learn one Five essential interview questions to boost your hiring success rate, taking it from the typical 50% all the way up to 90%. Two, the three key areas that full-powered leaders master, and they are priorities, the who or people and relationships. And three, you're going to learn how to say no in a better way that will actually make folks even respect you more for having said it. So here's a bit about Randy. Randy Street is the managing partner of GH Smart, a leadership advisory firm whose mission is to help great leaders amplify their positive impact on the world. In collaboration with founder Jeff Smart, Randy co-authored the New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestsellers, Who? The A Method for Hiring and Power Score, Your Formula for Leadership Success. Who? Remains the number one book on hiring on Amazon. So if you want to check out the things mentioned here, the show notes, the transcripts and things linked to, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep30. And now here's Randy. Randy, thanks so much for being here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Pete. Thanks for the invitation. Well, you know, it was so funny as I was looking around at your book and such, I was very impressed with GH Smart and a little bit embarrassed that I hadn't heard of it before. But you're you're across the nation. You got a 40-ish consultants with just robust uh, resumes and credentials. Can you tell us a little bit, what is GH Smart all about and how did it come to be? Sure. Uh, GH Smart is a leadership advisory business. We've been around for over 20 years, believe it or not. Uh, We're actually very well known in the private equity world, which is where we got our start, Uh, but we're not very well known in the corporate world. Uh, That really didn't become a big part of our business until we published our first book, Who, uh, back in 2008, uh, which is when we really were discovered. We essentially help with the selection and development of senior leaders, starting with CEOs. Uh, So we help boards through CEO succession. We help CEOs build out their teams. We help during critical strategic moments like M&A or uh, divestitures or just big uh, strategic shifts in the business where you've got to get the people right or the who right, as we like to say, to, uh, you know, to execute your strategy. Certainly. So, well, it's it's pretty impressive taking a spin through the website, and we'll definitely link that in the show notes to this episode. But I guess I'm just trying to emphasize there that it's not just a, a couple of folks and, and your ideas for leadership, but rather you've done an impressive degree of research in terms of like 1,300 hours interviewing many CEOs or, and 9 million data points. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about sort of your the data-driven process behind uh, getting to these insights in the books? Our core business actually is assessing senior leaders. So what, what is an assessment? 
we essentially sit down with a leader and walk through their career story in exhaustive detail. It's a four to five hour conversation. Oh boy. Um, yeah. <laughs> it goes all the way back in time to the beginning of their careers. And, and even a little earlier, we, we uh, pick up in their school years just to get a sense of context. And we walk through their careers to understand all the highs and lows, the accomplishments and failures, the, you know, the things that they're proud of, the things that were a disaster that they don't want to do again. Uh, and we do that for the purpose of, of trying to understand, is this person a good fit with a particular job or is this a, a person that you know, perhaps a private equity investor wants to back and so on. But the result of that, if you sort of step back, is we now have this incredible career inventory of, at this point, over 16,000 senior leaders. Uh, most of them are in business, but we've also looked at government leaders, education, hospitals, military. So it's kind of a broad range. And uh, we started realizing, my gosh, we're sitting on one of the richest databases of leadership, of leadership, successes and failures in the world. We ought to do something with that. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's actually over, a, um, we calculated it's over a, uh, 250,000 hours of thinking about and analyzing these leaders in various contexts. And yeah, we thought we should do something with that. And that actually is the genesis for the, the books and a lot of the research that we have done. Oh, well, I'm, I'm such a dork for data. So I, I'm really excited to hear a bit of a summary of, of some of your findings here. So you've presented those in kind of two best-selling books. And so I'd love to just hear a little bit about what are some of the, the key insights, takeaways there. So the first one was was who and all about good hiring practices, getting talent flowing and asking appropriate interview questions and onboarding. So I'll just let you run with that. What should we know from who? Sure. So I think the most important piece of who, the most important concept is you, you kind of are who you hire. It's sort of like that expression, you are what you eat. You are who you hire in, in a business or in any organization and you know, the stronger the people around you, the better you, better off you're going to be. And what's so strange is that in most other realms, this is pretty obvious. You think of, think of sports, for example, right. you pick your favorite team, the stronger the players and the better they play together, the more powerful the team, the more likely they are to succeed and, and to win. And yet, for some reason in business, we spend maybe, you know, we collectively, the mm-hmm. average hiring leader, spends maybe 30 minutes with somebody they you know they look at a resume and have a pretty superficial conversation and then they they use their gut to make a you know pretty rushed decision and then they're basically flipping the coin uh, and we have found yeah. that in fact the average uh, hiring leader makes a hiring mistake half the time so they literally are flipping a coin which is insanity <laughs> Right, you wouldn't you wouldn't buy a laptop with that little due diligence. You wouldn't buy a car with that little due diligence, and yet we're hiring people on the flip of a coin. And the average cost of a hiring mistake is roughly fifteen times that person's base salary. So the the cost of getting it wrong is massive, and the value of getting it right is is it's just almost incalcul incalculable. Well, I can't say that. It's it's big. Yeah, it's big. <laughs> And yet, what do most leaders think about, most managers think about? They think about strategy, they think about execution, they think about process, they think about what's for dinner tonight, but they don't (laughs) think about, do I have the right people on my team? And that's the problem that we're addressing with who. 
Oh, that, that's so good. Well, so I'm curious, this 15X figure, can you could lay out some of the, the biggest buckets of that? Sure. So about, it, so it's 15 times the base salary and about two times the base salary is just literally the hard costs of hiring the person. So it's recruiting. It's the base salary because you're paying them for a mm-hmm. period of time. And then there are severance costs. There might be some legal costs and so on. So that's about 2X on average. The rest of it is actually opportunity cost and mistakes. Mm. Uh, and so it varies by role. If you're looking at kind of an entry-level job, it tends to be more like five times. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're looking at a CEO, it could be a hundred times or more. I don't know if you saw the news story of when uh, Yahoo let their COO go. I think Marissa Myers let her CEO go a couple years ago, and it was like a hundred million dollar uh, you know, severance package. Mm. That's a big number. Sure. And you look at any CEO failure and the golden parachute that's attached with it, those numbers are massive. But even even senior leaders, uh, you know, you're looking at 15 times as a as an average number. And it's just because it's it's the business that doesn't get done. It's the sale that doesn't get completed or won. Uh, it's product defects that didn't get caught. And it can be more uh, insidious, like the fraud that happened under uh, that person's watch. So all of those examples are examples of poor stewardship, poor leadership by somebody who shouldn't have been in the role in the first place. Okay, well, I am overwhelmingly convinced slash terrified of the importance <laughs> of minimizing these hiring mistakes. So so how do you do it? What, what are some of the, the key best practices there? Yeah, so here's what's cool about human behavior. We all think we are unique, and we are, and, and, uh, and I don't want to take anything away from that. But uh, what's interesting is patterns that we establish in our lives tend to stick with us throughout our lives. And so if you can go back and walk through a person's career in detail and understand what they accomplished and how they did it and you know what they were unable to accomplish and, and why they were unable to accomplish it, you can begin to get a picture for who they really are, what they're all about, and what kinds of things they're really good at doing and what kinds of things they're not good at doing. It's, you know, in the when you're buying a mutual fund, it has that little disclaimer, which says past performance is not an indicator of future performance. When it comes to human behavior, past performance is actually the best indicator of future performance. And so if you can get a really robust understanding of what somebody's past performance looks like, going all the way back to how they performed in school, how they thought about school, how, you know, how they thought about academics or extracurriculars or, or athletics, performing arts, just how they approached it all the way through each of their jobs to current day, you can begin to see this pattern of what they're all about and and how they operate. And if you can see that pattern clearly, you've got half the equation. The other half of the equation is getting super clear about what you want to hire for. And so we have a a tool that we talk about in the book called the scorecard. And it's it's different from a job description. It's it's not just a, a list of duties and responsibilities, but it's actually the specific goals and outcomes that you want the person to accomplish in the job and the the competencies and behaviors you want them to show up and to demonstrate in the job. So that's the other half of the equation is getting super clear about what you're hiring for. Uh, And when you put the two together, when you know what you're hiring for and you sit down with someone long enough to really understand what they're all about, you can actually drive that 50-50 hiring success rate up to something closer to 90-10. And there's massive value to be created for you and your team and your organization if you can hire with a 90% 
or better success rate rather than a 50-50 success rate. Oh, that's that's great. So now, as you describe it, it sounds like then there's some real, I guess, clarity that has to be driven toward right up front, which you're not going to arrive at with a half hour. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. And you're just going to have to, to do the work to get there. But maybe could you give us an example of, you know, what's uh, something that a particular organization might be hiring for and how can they tease out within the course of that uh, kind of full history of a candidate, whether they've got the stuff or not. Yeah. So let's let's do a really uh, simple, straightforward example, because I think it'll illustrate the point well, and it'll be easy for your listeners to, to understand. And that's a sales role, uh, very easy to quantify. So let's start with the scorecard. So let's say we're a small business, maybe uh, $10 million in sales. We've got just a handful of salespeople and we want to grow the business from, you know, 10 million to 20 million over the next five years. I'm making all of this up. Sure. So, and let's say we're actually hiring for the head of sales just to really make this interesting. So the very first thing we want to understand is, all right, what's the mission for the role? Well, the mission is to grow the business from 10 million to 20 million over the next five years. And there's probably some definition you can put around what that looks like in terms of the types of clients you're going after and segments you're playing in and all of that. But basically, it's a dis- you know, that part does look like a job description. Uh, and then we get into the outcome. So what specifically must this, must this person do to accomplish that growth? So the first outcome might be uh, repeating that sales growth, which is, you know, grow sales from 10 million to uh, 12 million in the first year and and successfully on to 20 million over the five years. So that one just mimics the mission. The second one might be, since this is a sales leader, it might be build a team of 10 A-player salespeople by the end of this year. So suddenly we're not just saying job description, hire and develop people. We're actually saying build a team of 10 people, 10 A-player people. Very specific, very clear Another one might be a customer one, such as diversify our current customer base from the current mix where our top five customers make up 80% of our revenue to a point where at least 20 customers make up 80% of the revenue. Mm-hmm. So these are very specific. They're, they're metric driven if they can be. And it's something where in five years or three years or one year, I can look back and say, did this person accomplish these things or not? Uh, So that's the second piece of the scorecard, the outcomes. And then the third piece is the specific competencies. And this is where you might have job-specific competencies like persuasive, uh, great negotiation skills, empathetic, great listener, and so on. And, and this is a critical one, uh, you want to lay out competencies that matter to your culture. Mm -hmm. So about a third of all hiring mistakes are a result of cultural mismatch, not talent mismatch. And so you've got to get clear about what is your culture. Well, in this case, it's clearly an entrepreneurial culture. It's probably a culture where everybody, you know, wears multiple hats and has a can-do attitude. So you want to write those things down, you know, can-do attitude, a willingness to pitch in and help where needed, hardworking, uh, entrepreneurial, fun, Uh, Those sorts of things, because if somebody doesn't demonstrate those attributes, even if they're the best salesperson or sales leader in the world, they may not fit your culture and they may bounce out as a result. So that's what a scorecard looks like. It has a mission. It has 
outcomes, which are the very specific goals you want to see the person achieve. And then it has competencies, which break into job-specific competencies and cultural competencies. Okay. So I got a really clear picture of, of what I want. And so then as I am having a conversation with the candidates, I'm trying to see, you know, do they have that stuff? And I don't know if there are any kind of magic questions or approaches or best practices to, to go after while teasing that out? Yeah. So this is where we diverge from the average interview. And there's a lot of research out there that shows that most interviews are unsuccessful at getting at this data. And we would agree with that, actually. Most interviews are poorly executed. And the problem is uh, most interviews, first of all, many interviews are are a waste of time. You know, People walk in the room and just say, hey, tell me about yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, what are you good at? Oh, I see you like skydiving. I like skydiving. Let's talk about skydiving for the next half an hour. Oh, you seem like a good person. Uh, you're hired. So that obviously doesn't work. Um, the second method, which is a little more structured, it sounds more scientific, is people will walk in and they'll say, well, tell me about a time when you uh, grew sales. You know, what did you do? How'd you do it? And the problem with that, it's a behavioral interview. The problem with that is you start to lead the witness, if you will. You start to direct mm-hmm. the, the candidate. You're basically saying, look, this is what I'm looking for. This is what my scorecard is based on the questions you ask. And so we actually what we have found works, and this is what gets you that 90% success rate, is you turn the interview on its side. And instead of going in with specific specific questions, you go in with five general questions, which you ask over and over and over. And so basically, mm-hmm. these are the five. And you ask these for each job in their career. So you get to, you know, let's say, oh, Pete, I see you worked at, you know, Bain and Company. So let's talk about the time you were at Bain. Here are the five questions. Question one. What was, what were you hired to do? Basically, what was the job? And then you let the candidate talk for two minutes and just sort of lay out the the essence of the job. Question two, what accomplishments are you most proud of? Notice how open-ended that is. Not directing them at all. You could answer that with a whole range of things. But ideally, you start to answer it by saying, oh, well, I, I was really really good at, uh, let's say this is a salesperson again, I was really good at growing the sales uh, for my organization. And then you might follow it up and go, oh, that's interesting. How did you go about doing that? And they'll say, oh, well, you know, I was I was a manager of the region at the time. And so I, I quickly realized that I needed different people on my team. And so I started making some changes to the team. And as I started hiring more of the right people, we were able to grow the business and so on and so forth suddenly a picture is starting to emerge for what this person has done and how they've done it. Mm-hmm. Repeat that question. What else are you proud of accomplishing? What else? What else? What else? Get three, mm-hmm. four, five examples for that first job. Then flip it on its, or, you know, flip over to the other side and ask, all right, uh, so it sounds like you were really successful in that role. What didn't go as well? What were the yeah. do-overs? What were the mistakes? If you could go back and do it again, what would you do differently? Notice we're not saying, hey, what were your weaknesses? Mm-hmm. Nobody ever answers that question. They just say, oh, you know, my weaknesses, I'm... I work impatient. too hard. I <laughs> yeah, care I too much. Too hard. <laughs> Crazy, right? When we, you and I both know that because we probably both answered that way in our past. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, you're not, you're not looking for weaknesses. You're looking for things that they would do differently. What did they learn? What were the hard knocks, uh, the, the adverse situations that they had to overcome? And again, when they answer, ask, all right, great. So what did you do and, you know, how did you approach it and what would you do differently? That's a third question. Fourth question is, who did you work with? 
and and there's some sub questions here. So start with their boss. You know, who was your boss? What was it like working with that person? And what will that person tell me when I call him or her up uh, as a reference check? And there's some magic in those questions. By simply <laughs> teeing it up, people start to go, oh, interesting. You're going to call such and such. And, of course, we never do without permission. But at this juncture in the interview, they're thinking, all right, you're going to call them. I better tell you what they're going to say. Mm-hmm. And you'd be amazed at how honest people are with how they describe what their boss will say about them in the, uh, you know, in that reference. Magic. And then if, if they were a manager, ask them about their team too. So again, this is under question four of who did you work with? So if they were a manager say, well, tell me a little bit about your team. How many people reported to you? You know, if I could get all those people around the table today, what would they tell me about your management style? What, what do they like about working with you and about your style? What would they say you could do differently? So you're just trying to get a feel for how, the candidate thinks his his or her team sees them. Mm-hmm. And then the last question is, well, why did you leave? And you know, Jack Welch in his book, Winning, says if he, could, if he could only ask a single question in an interview, it would be this one, why did you leave? And what you're looking for here is for people who got pulled out by a bigger or better opportunity. Maybe they're promoted or maybe they got recruited away by a former boss or someone who knows them. And obviously you're looking for red flags, which is the people who got fired or (laughs) rift. I always love when people say, oh, I got rift. You know, it was a reduction in force. And you go, oh, interesting. You got rift. How many people were rift? Uh, You know, two. Mm. (laughs) There were two of us that day. That's not a rift. That that is, they got fired. Yeah. So you're looking for people who have sort of positive momentum and a positive trajectory in their career. Now, Those five questions, what were you hired to do? What accomplishments are you most proud of? What didn't go as well? Who did you work with? And why did you leave? With all of the kind of double clicking into each of them to understand what they did and how they did it. If you do that across four or five jobs, a really clear picture about this person will emerge. I I just promise you, it's uncanny how accurate it is. And now you have the other half of the puzzle. Oh, that's, that's so cool. I want to do it right now. <laughs> that's great. I, I tell, uh, we, we train people on this a lot. And I'll, you know, people will go, my gosh, this sounds, this sounds on the one hand really simple, which it is. There are only right. five questions. It's not hard to master that. On the other hand, it's a little scary because people want to have sort of the security of a really complex interview guide that tells them exactly what to say. And we're saying, no, just go in and have a conversation. Let these five questions be your guide. And, and once you do it once, you'll never go back to doing it the old way. And people always kind of giggle and shake a little bit and go, gee, I don't know. I don't know. But they go do it. And sure enough, from our experience, they never go back. It's, it's, first of all, it's just more enjoyable enjoyable because you're having a conversation with somebody. And second of all, you actually get interesting and useful information that'll help you make a better decision. Oh, that's great. That's great. And so, just looking at your, your back cover of the book, Bullets, there. Can you also share with us, what is the number one tactic used to generate a flow of A players to your team? Referrals. All you right. know, we've been looking for the silver bullet on this one forever. And we, we even hoped that some of these technology solutions would actually help here. And in fact, if any of your listeners has a technological solution that works, A, I want to know, and B, <laughs> I might want to invest <laughs> because... No. This is an incredibly big problem. How do you find people who are a reasonably good match 
with your scorecard. And the facts are, if you look at resumes, you know, resumes are just marketing documents. It has all the good stuff and none of the bad stuff. So you mm-hmm. don't really know. Uh, the only way you can really get a decent flow of candidates is by getting referrals. And the, the sort of the ninja tactic that mm-hmm. we learned, and we learned this, uh, oh boy, years ago. Uh, and it's a really simple question that uh, Pat Ryan, who is a former CEO of Aon Insurance and, and founder of Aon. And he said, here's the question you ask. When you meet somebody talented, say, hey, you know, hey, Pete, you're a talented guy. Who are the most talented people you know that I may want to get to know who might be a good fit for my company? And he literally went around asking everybody. If he was at a, a party, he'd ask people. If he was at a professional event or a conference, he'd ask people. When I met him, he asked, you know, hey, who, who are the most talented people you know that I might want to consider? They're my employees and you can't have them. <laughs> Except them. Exactly. <laughs> Hands off. off limits, man. <laughs> but interestingly, he built out his executive team doing this. He really doesn't use, he didn't use recruiters. He used referrals and he used that question to to find the people. And we do it here at Smart too. And it, it really is effective because... Talented people, no talented people. Certainly. Oh, that's exciting. Okay, so so that kind of covers the who in some detail. Now, over on the power score side, there's a, there's a couple other dimensions. The we got the W in the middle, so the W of power. We've also got the priorities and the relationships. Can you speak a bit there about what are some mistakes people make in those departments and the best practice approaches within those departments? Sure. Um, and I'm happy to address the question. Can I actually frame it up first? Real oh, please do. It's probably worth just a quick uh, bit of context. So power score is actually uh, the result of all of this research we talked about at the beginning of our conversation. We, for years, people have asked us, hey, you know, hey, GH Smart, you guys are interviewing leaders all day long every day. What makes for a successful leader? And we thought, well, gee, that's a that's that's a pretty big question, <laughs> and that's that's a universal question. People have been asking that for thousands of years. What does make for a successful leader? And there's so many theories out there for what makes successful leadership. And we thought, you know what, we're sitting on the biggest database in the world of actual, you know, detailed data on tens of thousands, you know, sixteen thousand leaders. We ought to have an answer for this, if there is an answer to be found. And so we partnered up with Steve Kaplan out of the University of Chicago Graduate School of Business to analyze this this data. And what we found was there are, in fact, three factors or, or drivers of leadership success that have nothing to do with style or personality or charisma or any of that other stuff. But just literally, if you ask the question, what do great leaders do? They all do these three things. So that's P, W, and R, which spells power, uh, which is this framework. So P, as you noted, is priorities. That's the first thing they do. Great leaders set priorities. And it sounds incredibly simple, but the biggest mistake most people make is they don't say no. And if you Mm. don't say no, how many priorities do you end up with, Pete? Infinite. (laughs) Infinite. That's right. (laughs) And an infinite number of priorities means no priorities. And this is 90% of people who stink at the P, stink at it because they, they just can't say no. They don't set priorities. The best of the best 
will have three, maybe five priorities, and they drive everything off of those three to five priorities. And by the way, only 24% of leaders in our uh, database are great at this. The rest uh, tend to have too many priorities and, mm. and therefore a lack of focus. And that lack of focus gets worse and worse as you go deeper into the organization. The W is, as you said, that's the who. Only 14% of leaders in our database are great at hiring and uh, hiring A players and developing those A players, which means 86% of people you know, stink at it, which again goes back to the first book and why we attacked that first. That That is the biggest problem in, in really leadership is people just don't put enough energy into getting the who right. And they, mm-hmm. you know, until they realize the value of getting that right, um, you know, they'll never reach their full potential. And then the last one is R, which stands for relationships. And this is not kumbaya. This is how do you set up a team where one plus one equals five? Mm. How, how do you get the power of the team? So it's great that you got the who right and you've got A players, but how do you get the A players to play together in a way that's coordinated, where they're challenging one another, where there's sort of mutual commitment to one another and accountability, where there's good role modeling, and where you get that that magic moment where the team just comes alive and and, and you get way more than what any, uh, you know, what the sum of the individuals would produce uh, on their own. And when you do those three things, you will be, and hang on to your hat for this one, 20 times more successful than a leader who does none of those three things. Okay. Massive finding. There's a huge difference. So that's what drives great leaders. As it turns out, Uh, we call it a full powered leader. One who sets clear priorities, gets the who right and sets their team up so that, so that uh, relationships work. Okay. So, well, I'd like to dig in just a bit into the the priorities and the relationships. So I guess with priorities, it's part of the game is just some discipline saying no. What are some other kind of key strategies or tactics in order to land on your right priorities well? Right. And that's a key word. Are they the right priorities? So it's it's great to say no to stuff, but if you're saying no to the wrong things and yes to the wrong things, then you end up doing the wrong things which, you know, having three priorities that are actually wrong won't help you at all. So, yeah, what's underneath that? You know, you've you've got to do your basic strategy. You've got to understand where you're going. You've got to listen to the market. Best practices for for that, by the way, aren't, you know, doesn't include just talking to customers, paying attention to competitors, but also just reading sort of voraciously to understand what's going on in the broader context so the, the best leaders on the P are very, very good, first and foremost, at just spending a lot of time thinking about the big picture, about customers, competitors, what we ourselves are, are great at doing and how we should show up in the market. You know, for And that's at a leadership level. As you go deeper in the organization, as an individual, it's doing the same thing. It's asking, you know, what am I uniquely able to contribute to my organization what are my strengths? What do I love to do? Where am I passionate? And aligning your role around those things. And then having the courage to say no, that's actually a, a pretty big deal. Most people really struggle with it. And the trick on this one to say no, um, this is something I use in my own life. I realized that every time I said yes to something, I was actually saying no to something else. Oh, yes. Without and everything else really kind of opportunity cost. In a yeah, way. right. So <laughs> yeah. if I say, yes, I'm going to help you out with this project. I've just said no to 
what, family time, sleep, Mm -hmm. exercise, free time, time with friends, a chance to do some other project, to take some other job, whatever, right? The minute I've said yes, I have said no to lots of other stuff. And when you realize that, you start to realize, man, every time I say yes, there's a chance I'm cheating myself. And by cheating myself, I might be cheating the world or my organization out of you know, my, me bringing my best self to, to work. And so it actually forces you, at least it forces me to sort of hit the pause button and go, you know what? Hey, I'm flattered that you're interested in me doing whatever it is, but I'd like to think about it. And I use the time, I'll sleep on it, and I'll use the time to kind of count the cost. If mm-hmm. I say yes to this, what am I saying no to? Is that trade-off a good trade-off or not? And that gives, that gives me courage anyway, and I think others that we've coached along the way courage to say, you know what, I'm not just going to say yes to everything, I'm actually going to think about it. Oh, yes, and I like that too. And in a way, as like if you were to say no to me, and I'm glad you said yes to this podcast, thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think about it, Pete. I had to think about it. Like, what, what are we talking here? Yeah. <laughs> what am I saying no to? <laughs> so much appreciated again. Uh, I guess I, <laughs> that makes me respect the person who declined me all the more. It's like, oh, okay, they're giving it serious consideration. And then when they say no, it just makes me want to uh, respect it all the more and still think you're a great guy instead of some jerk who <laughs> blew me off. Yeah, you know, here's an example. Uh, th- this may be useful. So I got a call. My, I've got three kids, three girls who all go to the same school. And a couple of years ago, the a member of the board called me and said, hey, we are about to select a new headmaster. We're putting together some some committees of parents and students and alumni to help outgoing headmaster and our board to select the new headmaster. Would you like to be part of the committee? And, you know, mm-hmm. at first, I, I mean, I, I was like, yes, was on the tip of my tongue. And then I was like, no, wait a second. Wait a second. If I say yes to this, what am I saying yes to? I'm going to be sitting in a room with a whole bunch of people probably following an unstructured process, not really using my strengths and my my professional capabilities to help the school, I shouldn't say yes to that at all. In fact, what I should do is reframe the conversation. And so I said to the gentleman, you know what, let me tell you a little bit about what I do for a living and how I could actually help you far in a far greater way than just being another person sitting on a committee. And so I I ended up reframing the whole thing. And I think just like you said, he had such respect for it that they ended up involving me in a very different way. I said no to his direct request, but ended up saying yes to a very different request, uh, which I framed for him and was the way I ended up helping the school select the new headmaster. Oh, and it's even better. It's better for them. And you probably spent fewer total hours of, of your life invested in it. Absolutely, which meant much less frustration for me and I think better value for them. So everybody won in that case. Oh, that's and fantastic. They got, a, they got an awesome headmaster. I'm so excited. that This guy is fantastic. Oh, victory. Victory. <laughs> and, and how about likewise, uh, what are some kind of key thoughts, uh, tactic strategies to get the R, the relationship synergy flowing? Yeah, so this is the trickiest one. And actually, uh, to make the model work, we we put it together as power, PWR. But if you double click on the R, there's actually there are sort of two pieces to it. There's the personal piece and the interpersonal piece. And so the personal piece is really how you show up. You're gonna have a hard time building a team around you if you are 
and I'm just going to be dramatic here, but you're lazy. <laughs> uh, you don't show up. You don't, you know, you don't carry your load. You don't follow through on your commitments. You are untrustworthy. Like all of those things will absolutely destroy your ability to pull a team together. The flip side, of course, then becomes table stakes. You've got to show up. You've got to work hard. You've got to listen to other people. You've got to follow through on your commitments. Right? You've got to be a role model. You've got to be worth following. Mm-hmm. So all of the leadership theories that focus on kind of who you are and being authentic, all of that is true. But what we found was it's table stakes. Having that doesn't make you a great leader. Not having those things makes you a terrible leader. Right. Uh, but having it just gets you a seat at the table. So that then brings us to the second piece, which is the interpersonal piece. So how do you then, you know, assuming you're worth, you know, a leader worth following, assuming you're role modeling the right behaviors, what do you do? And we found there are a couple of things. One is it's super simple, but a lot of people forget to do it. It's simply getting people coordinated. Literally, who's meeting with whom and what conversations are we having? Are, you know, are the right discussions happening? A lot of times company strategies change, but meetings that have been on the calendar for years stay on the calendar, even though they should shake it up and get different people involved. So that's one. The second one is commitment. And this is really about mutual commitment. We have found bringing teams together that are having some sort of dysfunction and talking just about, you know, what what are our norms as a team? How are we going to show up? How are we going to support each other? Uh, what are our rules of engagement actually begins to build commitment amongst the individuals. And then of course, teams need to have fun outside of, of work as well. So how, how are we connecting with each other, you know, outside of the formal context? So number one is coordinating, two is committing. And then the third piece is challenging. And this is as a leader in particular, how do we challenge people to be more than they think they can be? I bet you everybody listening to this has had a teacher or a coach, or if they're lucky, a boss or a mentor who has pushed them and said, you know what? I think you can do even better than that. I think you can do more. And sometimes we don't like to hear that message because it's sort of, it's uncomfortable. And it, it sort of feels like, my gosh, you're asking me to do something I don't even think I can do. But great leaders believe in the possibility of their people and of their team, and they, they, they draw it out of them. And that's the, that's the challenge that I'm talking about here. So those are three tactics, coordinating people, committing them and challenging them that we have found helps to bring teams together and create that one plus one equals five dynamic. Oh, perfect. Thank you. Well, this is just a ton of fun for me. Exciting stuff. I'm going to be chewing on it, thinking about it, uh, applying it. I know we're, we're coming into our final minutes here. So you tell me, is there anything else you want to make sure you put out there before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? No, I think we've covered the ground pretty nicely. I guess uh, sort of a parting thought on sort of the who concept and the, the power score concept is this. I, I think everybody intuitively understands that leadership is powerful and important. I think where most of us fall down is we don't quite know how to approach it. And what I hope this has done is shown that there are actually some pretty tactical things that we can all do, irrespective of personality or style, that will enable us to be full-powered leaders. And I think the world needs more full-powered leaders. Great leaders make all the difference. Uh, And I think every single person 
out there has the opportunity to be a great leader. And that's what I would love to see, more great leaders in the world. Oh, agreed. Agreed. Well, thank you. So could you kick us off by sharing perhaps a a favorite quote, something that uh, whenever you you think about it kind of inspires you? Yeah, I I came across a quote. It actually is by an author named Gil Bailey. I found it in a book called Wild at Heart by John uh, Etheridge. Oh, yeah. Eldridge, Eldridge, excuse me. And the quote is, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and go do that. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. Mm, That's good. Thank you. And how about a favorite study or piece of research? So my favorite research, I think, of all time is by Frederick Hertzberg. It was an article he wrote for the Harvard Business Review in 1968, but it, it remains a perennial bestseller. It's called one more time, how do you motivate employees? <laughs> and I think it, it, it is, for me, it resonates as the uh, sort of seminal work on, on employee motivation. And it really, it's sort of rings true with my own life. So it sort of has face validity. And, and I have found it to be very useful as a, as a leader to think about this really tricky question of motivation. And how about a favorite habit or personal practice of yours that's really been key for your effectiveness? So about 10 years ago, I created a practice called MAP, a Monday Action Plan. And essentially what I realized was is if I could get organized on Monday morning, I could probably produce at least 50% more, if not 100% more, through the course of the week. Mm. Uh, and so what I do on Monday is I spend about one to two hours first thing in the morning. I don't look at email. I don't answer the phone. I don't have any scheduled meetings or calls. And I I basically work through a checklist and that checklist forces me to think about my goals and priorities, uh, to think about my calendar, to think about my time, to think about the who and the and the relationships on my team uh, to communicate with those people and basically to figure out what I need to do. Uh, this week and over the next three weeks. And I do it on a, you know, every Monday I look at sort of the next three weeks. And that one to two hours makes all the difference for me in terms of my productivity um, because I know kind of what my marching orders are and I don't let anything fall through the cracks, whether that's key communication or key meetings that need to be scheduled or, or actions that need to be taken. Oh, excellent. Thank you. And, and how about maybe a sort of a fan favorite uh, nugget or piece of content of yours, like when you're, when you're sharing it, whether it's in the book, maybe there's a bunch of Kindle highlights, or if it's at a conference or it gets retweeted a lot. What, what are some of the, the things you share that people really seem to nod their heads and resonate with? So uh, two come to mind on that one. Uh, one is, uh, I believe that everybody is an A player at something. Mm. And that your job, if you're hiring somebody, is to figure out what somebody is an A player at and decide if it matches what you need them to do. So in other words, everybody, you know, I, I think every, you know, we, we've all been given gifts and talents. And the question is not, you know, are you a good person or a bad person or <laughs> anything like that? It's what are you great at and does it fit? So everybody's an A player at something. And the second one is just a very simple statement that I believe is true. I think leadership is the ultimate lever for good. So Archimedes, the great Greek mathematician and philosopher and scientist and and all, once said something to the effect of, give me a lever long enough and a place to stand, and with it, I can move the world. And I think leadership is that lever. 
uh, and I think it is the ultimate lever to create good in the world. Oh, excellent. Thank you. And how about a favorite way for folks to find you? Would you prefer Twitter or LinkedIn or email or your website? Where would you point them to? So I am low tech, Pete. (laughs) (laughs) Our website is probably the best way to reach me, uh, ghsmart.com, G-H-S-M-A-R-T.com. I also have a personal author website, randyhstreet, all one word, dot com, randyhstreet.com. All right, perfect. And maybe a favorite challenge or final call to action for those seeking to be more awesome at their jobs. Yeah. So number one, be an A player yourself. Figure out what makes you come alive and go do that because the world needs you to do that. Two, hire A players. If you're in the position to hire, hire A players. Make it your number one priority as a leader. Uh, it's going to make all the difference. Perfect. Well, Randy, thank you so much. This has been a real treat and I wish you lots of luck over at GH Smart and all your pursuits. My pleasure, Pete. Thank you again for the invitation. I've enjoyed it. Are you fired up? Are you excited to tell someone that you're going to think about it and actually think about it and make an optimal decision about yes or no, or are there great takeaways you're going to use? I hope so. And if you want to review them, you can find those at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep30. Hope to catch you next time. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 